You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. So, the series that we're looking at uh, over these weeks is called The Church on Mission. And we're looking at what's called Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, Paul, who was one of the uh, early leaders of the uh, early church, uh, was travelling around telling people about Jesus and also encouraging people who were already followers of Jesus to keep uh, learning from Jesus, to keep sharing their faith with other people. Um, As the name suggests, this is the third such journey that Paul has been on. Uh, to do this work. There's a bit of a map on the screen there that shows um, where Paul went on this third missionary journey, starting in Antioch, which was his home church that he went out from, uh, overland, and then eventually coming back by a sea uh, to Jerusalem, where he finished up that journey. Where we're up to in the story is uh, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's been there for over two years, and God's been doing some quite remarkable things while he's been there. So uh, some miracles are happening, people are being healed of sicknesses, people are having evil spirits which are cast out of them. And in the passage that we looked at last week, we saw that as many people turned to Jesus, they brought these scrolls, these books of magic spells that they had been using, and they throw them on a big bonfire because they want to change the way that they're living, they want to turn away from their past life, which was involved in magic and witchcraft and that sort of thing. They want to start following Jesus, and so they throw these things on a fire as an act of of change, living a new life and following Jesus. Uh, At the end of our passage last week, Paul also flagged the fact that he was about to move on on his journey, but he hasn't quite done so yet. We're still in Ephesus in today's passage. Um, And we hear this story, really, of this riot that takes place in the city of Ephesus. Uh, The challenge for us today, I think, with this Bible passage is not so much understanding it, but really trying to work out what does it mean for us today. Uh, We've talked about the different ways that people can approach a book like Acts, which is a story, it's a narrative, it's telling us what happened in the early church. Uh, We said that one mistake that people can make is just to treat it like an instruction book, kind of like a manual for operating the air conditioner, follow the steps and things will happen uh, in that way as described in the instruction book. Sometimes people read Acts and they think if we do things in exactly the same way that we read about here, that's the way to operate church today. Uh, That's a mistake. It's not not supposed to be an instruction manual for us. Uh, Another thing that people can do is just to treat it like a history book and say, well, that's, you know, interesting, but it's got nothing to teach us today. Uh, And I was saying last week that actually a better way to do it is to treat it like a play where you've got the first four acts of the play, but you have to improvise how to carry the play on. So we've got uh, things that teach us about what the early church got up to, but we are the church today. We're serving the same Jesus who is risen and ruling over the whole world. He's given us the same Holy Spirit within us, but we have to do things appropriately for our context in 2018 and the people that we want to share Jesus with and help to grow in Jesus. Um, You can listen to the podcast for a bit more about that from where we were talking about that last week and the week before. 
But the real danger with today's passage is more about treating it just like interesting history. You get this story, and it is, it is interesting, it is history too. Luke uh, tells us what happened in this riot. He puts in little facts about uh, local officials, uh, which matches up with other history books that we have. It matches up with archaeology um, that has, uh, you know, archaeological discoveries that have been found. And I'll put a few pics as we go through uh, so that you can see some things to show that this is actually real history. It's about real people, uh, real events in time, um, which is a good reminder that the Bible is about real people and it is a historical account. But the temptation at the end is to say, but I don't know what to do with it. So uh, we're going to go through, and I'm going to cover the story pretty quickly with you, but then I want to cycle back at the end and have a think in more depth about what it might be speaking to us today. So if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to grab them. You can grab one of the blue ones from the uh, seats in front of you. It's page 901, Acts chapter 19. Uh, And you can really break this passage up into three sections. There's the cause of the riot. What is it that started this riot? That's from verses uh, 20. 3 through to uh, 27, 28. Then there's the sort of escalation as the riot gets more and more out of hand from uh, 28 down to 34. And then there's the end of the riot when it all comes to an end. That's from uh, verse 35 to 41. So the riot starts when this guy Demetrius, who's a silversmith, he makes things out of silver, Um, stirs up other workers in his field and in in similar trades because he's worried. All of these people are becoming followers of Jesus. They're becoming Christians. And that means that they're not going to worship the local gods anymore. And Demetrius' job is to make silver shrines, like silver temples, um, and to sell them so that people would use these idols and these little things to worship the gods. But if people start following Jesus and stop worshipping these gods, then they're going to be out of business. It's going to have an economic impact. Uh, It's probably a bit uh, helpful to have a bit of background about Artemis, who's being spoken about here, this god that's being spoken about in Ephesus. So Artemis, um, and there's a pic on the next um, slide there, Artemis was a Greek goddess. She was the goddess of hunting, Uh, and wild animals. She was the goddess of childbirth and also the goddess of virginity. I don't know how those last two go together, but there you go. Um, uh, And that's uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. That's sort of the the idol that would have been worshipped in this place of Ephesus. She was a god who was worshipped quite widely in the ancient world. And there were particular cities who focused on worshipping her uh, especially, and Ephesus was one of those places. Um, In Ephesus, there was a huge temple to Artemis. Uh, This is uh, a replica, a recreation of that temple that's in modern-day Turkey where Ephesus is. Uh, And this building was actually so large and so magnificent that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Right, if you listed seven amazing things to see in the ancient world, this was one of those seven. Uh, you might have heard of the Parthenon, which is in Athens, a very famous temple in Athens. This shrine in Ephesus was four times bigger than the Parthenon. Uh, those towers that you see there, there was 127 of these pillars, um, and they're all 
um, 60 feet tall or 18 metres high. It's a massive building. People would travel from all over the world to see it. Um, There's ancient records of people seeing this temple as they come into Ephesus and just having their breath taken away. So you get a bit of an idea about how magnificent this was, uh, how much money would have been poured into building that, how much of a focus the worship of this god Artemis was. And so not surprisingly, Demetrius and his friends are worried that if people start following Jesus and they're not going to be worshipping Artemis, that this is going to have an impact. So there's the economic issue, um, you know, that they'll not be able to make money anymore. But in verse 27, he also lists three other deeper implications of what's going to happen if people follow Jesus. First thing he says is that their trade, being silversmiths, are going to lose their good name, um, their reputation, if you like. If no one wants to buy their stuff, then they'll kind of lose their reputation, um, they'll lose their place in society, particularly if no one's buying it and they've got no money, um, then they won't be very highly regarded. Secondly, he says that this temple will start to be discredited. This glorious building, which was a focus for the city, will be ignored. People won't think it's that important anymore. It's kind of hard to get our head around uh, what this would be like in Melbourne today. The closest I can get is, you know, as, as Melbourneites, we consider ourselves the sporting capital of Australia. Um, and it'd be a bit like if a new religion came along, which was against footy and cricket, and the MCG, people stop going to the MCG, and we're worried that, oh, it's going to fall into disrepair, um, the grand final is going to move to Perth, we're going to lose our name as the sporting capital. It's not quite a good parallel, but, you know, maybe you're feeling a sense of indignation as I speak that way about the MCG, that you can get this sort of idea about how they would have felt back then. And the last thing that he's worried about is that the goddess herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, just stop and have a reflection on the irony of that last statement. Okay, if Artemis is in fact a real god with real power who is worthy of worship, then how can she be robbed of her divine majesty? If a god is truly a god, then their power and their glory is independent of whether humans respond to them in that way. But if, in fact, a god is nothing, then they only get their power and their glory from the fact that people worship them and have these ceremonies um, in their name. That's the only thing that actually imbues them with any worth and power. So you can't rob a true god of its power. You can fail to do justice to the majesty of God. You can ignore it and uh, not live in a way which is consistent with how God should be treated. But you can't actually take God's glory away because otherwise God's glory is dependent on you and other humans in the first place, which makes them no God at all. Which is exactly what Paul is quoted as saying in verse 26. He says, Gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Uh, Maybe you're here visiting with us today and uh, you're thinking about Jesus for the first time or you're thinking about God. Um, Can I just say that 
how you respond to God doesn't actually change the fact that God is God and that God has power and authority. Uh, We don't give power to God. We respond to the power that God has in the first place and we need to respond appropriately. But God is not impacted by our response. He doesn't need it for his glory and his majesty. We just rightly respond to God as he is with glory and majesty already there. But Demetrius, in sort of saying, well, the goddess is going to be robbed of a power, unwittingly sort of says that it's humans who are creating this god and this worship. But he whips the crowd up, he whips the tradesmen up, and they start shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The riot then escalates because with all of these people in the street shouting, other people join in. Uh, And the riot kind of gets bigger and bigger. They grab hold of two of Paul's uh, friends and they basically lynch them. They they obviously can't find Paul, so they grab two of his friends and they rush into the theatre together. Uh, The next slide has a picture of the theatre in Ephesus. It was a big building. It could seat 25,000 people. That's the size of uh, Carrara Stadium, where the Gold Coast Suns have their home ground. Sorry for all the footy references uh, today, but it gives you a bit of a sense of the size. Uh, We don't know whether there were 25,000 people as part of this riot, but there was a lot of people involved, and that was the space that they uh, flowed into together. When Paul finds out that they've got his mates there and these riots going on, he wants to go and address the crowd but he's warned by his friends and some of the officials that that's not a good idea. They talk him out of it, Uh, which is pretty wise advice because things are getting really chaotic. Some people are shouting one thing, other people are shouting something else, and most of the people don't even know why they're there. It's kind of classic mob behaviour. Everyone's out of control, yelling, screaming, yeah, what are we here for? Um, They're just along for the ride, and it's getting really wild and crazy. Uh, The Jewish people in the town are worried that they might get lumped together with the Christians because Jews were known to oppose uh, the worship of idols. So they try and get their guy, Alexander, to stand up and address the crowd, probably to say, hey, we're not with those Christians, just to be clear. But people just shout him down, and for two hours they just shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They just keep shouting it. The riot ends when the city clerk steps onto the scene. He would have been an elected official. He was responsible for the, the paperwork of the, of the city. And he would have been recognised as an authority figure. And he gets up and he makes four basic arguments, four convincing arguments. First thing he says, guys, everyone knows that Ephesus is famous for its temple and for the worship of Artemis. That's not going to change. You're overreacting, calm down, um, you know, that's, that's not going to change. Everyone knows that already. Secondly, he says, these two guys that you're lynching, they haven't actually committed a crime. They're innocent. They haven't robbed the temple. They haven't blasphemed. They haven't spoken against any of the gods. So you're about to lynch two innocent people. Thirdly, he says, If you think that there is a problem, well, there's legal avenues you can pursue. The courts are open. There are pro-consuls, like judges, who can hear your case. So if you think there's a problem, go through the legal avenues to deal with it. And then fourthly, the stinger, he says, as it is, you're in danger yourself of breaking the law and getting into trouble. 
Uh, the Romans did not like riots and people, you know, uprisings without cause. So he's saying, you're about to have the Roman army come down on you pretty hard because you're rioting without reason. You're heading for trouble. And as a result of these arguments, sort of, you know, people snap out of this frenzy and everyone goes home. Uh, so again, it's an interesting story, but what's the point of it? Why is this in our Bibles? And what's it got to teach us as a church who are on mission together? I think one of the key reasons why Luke has recorded this incident is that he's trying to show that Christianity is not opposed to the Roman Empire and what is going on there. Uh, for the early church, they were very vulnerable, and if they were seen to be mounting attacks on the Roman Empire, then they would be subject to persecution, um, being shut down, which did actually happen later on for Christian people, that they were persecuted by the Romans. But I think what he's doing here is trying to spell out in detail that this Roman official, this city clerk, he stands up and defends Christianity and he shows that they're not actually doing anything illegal in what they're doing. Uh, they're not undermining the government in that way. Now, for us, I think this is less of an issue. Uh, it's unlikely that the fact that we're sitting here having church today is seen as being in opposition to the government of Australia, that we're likely to get shut down. That is the case for lots of Christians meeting around the world, but it's not really an issue for us in Australia. Australian culture, Australian society has been founded on Christian principles, and while our society is, is moving further away from that, and we should expect it to move further away in the future, there's not a pressing danger for us in the same way that it was for these early Christians. I think the bigger point for us, the bigger point of application is thinking about how an authentic expression of Christian faith, how putting following Jesus into practice actually goes against the idols of a culture and a society. It shows that Jesus is, in fact, pitted against the, the idols of the culture in which we're in. Um, when I'm talking about idols, I'm not talking about you know, silver and gold statues or uh, carved bits of wood only, as we often think about an idol. But an idol is something which is deeply loved, deeply respected within a culture. Uh, I've said before that there's three key ways to identify an idol in our own lives and in the culture around us, and that is to say, what is it that we love? What do we really love more than anything else? What is it that we trust? Where do we find our security? And what is it that we serve? What do we put our time and our energy and our money into serving? Uh, and the best way to see how this applies is to unpack, go back and unpack the cause of the riot in Ephesus. The first thing to notice is the way that Christianity is described here. It's not actually called Christianity. It's not called following Jesus. Here's how it's described, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Christianity is described here as the way. And it highlights the fact that following Jesus is a way of life. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And being a Christian is about 
living your life in the way of Jesus, living his way. So it means living in a way that is radically different from the society around us um, because we're followers of Jesus. So here in Ephesus, people become followers of Jesus. They bring their, their magical scrolls and they burn them because they want to change the way that they live. It impacted how they treated these material possessions, these things that were precious to them. It changed the way they related to their money. They didn't want to start spending their money on idols and shrines anymore. It changed the way that they did that. And really, at the heart of this riot is money and economics. These silversmiths are worried that they're going to lose their income because Christians are using their money differently. These people who have become Christians have a different attitude to money and use their money in different ways. So following Jesus should actually impact a number of things, but it should impact the way that we use our money and the way that we relate to material things. It should be noticeable for Christians that we live in a different way and we have a different attitude to money and we use money in different ways to those around us. Now, there's kind of obvious things that we can think of uh, as followers of Jesus. There are things that we think, well, that's unhelpful or ungodly to spend money on, so I won't spend my money on that anymore. Things like silver idols or pornography or throwing money into gambling, things like that. We sort of think, well, we wouldn't want to use our money for that because it's unhelpful, it's ungodly, it's not the way of Jesus. But there are other things that are more subtle as well. Um, Things like using our money to buy things which have been produced unjustly. Uh, Maybe spending money on clothing which is cheap, but it's been produced in places where people are not receiving an income that can allow them to, to eat and support themselves, taking advantage of people that way. Now, that requires thinking and discernment to say, well, will I spend my money in that place uh, and will I do the research to work out whether my spending is promoting injustice rather than justice in the world? Things like comfort spending, rather than when we're feeling miserable about life, coming to Jesus and seeking comfort and security in him, uh, going on a shopping spree, doing some retail therapy, as a way of comforting ourselves. Uh, Things like not accumulating uh, wealth for ourselves at the expense of others, building up possessions for ourselves rather than having a generous heart. Um, Things like being committed to uh, contributing what we have to the work of the church and its mission and what is going on around the world. Um, There's so many things that, as followers of Jesus, it should impact the way that we use money, and it makes a difference. Uh, At the previous church where I was, uh, a number of Iranian men and women became Christians. They converted from Islam and started following Jesus. And I remember one morning, uh, one of these guys came up to me with a shocked look on his face, And he said, uh, he was being discipled by an older Iranian man. uh, And so he said, look, Khalil's been talking to me and he he told me that Christians give 10% of what they earn to the church and to mission. That can't be right, Tim. That's too much. And I said, well, actually, that that is right. Um, 
Christians actually take 10% as a bit of a starting point for giving away to Jesus' work in the world. That's exactly what we do. But for this guy who was a new Christian, that, was a, that blew his mind that Christians had that sort of attitude to money in that way. But the thing is, when we make Jesus the Lord, which is what being a Christian is, making Jesus the boss, saying, you're in charge of the world and you're in charge of my life, Jesus, it means that he's the boss of everything, including how we use our money. Our church uh, vision uh, has one of its values that as a church we apply the Bible to every part of life. Um, And so when we read the Bible, which teaches us the way of Jesus, we want to put that into practice everywhere in our lives and in everything that we do. Uh, And so, you see, everywhere that Christianity goes, where people are taking Jesus seriously... It has a massive impact on economics. Um, I was speaking last week about the times where God particularly pours out his Holy Spirit in miraculous and powerful ways where he blesses a particular region and lots of people come to Jesus and lots of people recommit their lives to Jesus. And one, uh, It's called revival. People will often use the word revival to speak about these special blessings of God and his Holy Spirit in particular uh, areas. And perhaps the most notable revival that's happened in Australian history was amongst Indigenous Australians. It started on Elko Island, which is an island just off Arnhem Land. And in 1978, this revival broke out from the Uniting Church there, but it spread over the next decade throughout Indigenous communities throughout Australia in powerful ways. And thousands of people, um, Aboriginal men and women, became Christians or rededicated their life to Jesus or took much more seriously what it meant to follow Jesus as a result of this pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. And it had an impact on behaviour and on economics. So at Wilunya in Western Australia, um, the crime rate there dropped to zero. There was zero crime as a result of what happened. And the pub in that town started offering free beer to get people to actually come to the pub because people had stopped spending their money on alcohol because they'd seen the damage that it had been having on that community. As people came to Jesus, it impacted every area of their life, including the way that they used their money. And the more that we commit our lives to the way of Jesus, and the more widespread the way of Jesus becomes in our community, the more it will influence and impact on the culture around us. And that inevitably leads to tensions, as we see in this passage. Because in becoming followers of Jesus and changing the way that we live, um, it will actually put us out of step with other people who are living in a different way. Uh, And maybe this has been your experience. When you became a Christian, maybe it created real tensions in your family or with your spouse or partner, Uh, maybe with your parents or with your children because when you started following Jesus or changed an aspect of your life because of following Jesus, it put you out of step with them. And what often happens is that people try and pull you back and... Uh, sort of put the equilibrium back to change things to the way they were because people get uncomfortable with the changes. But, of course, the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. 
And so you can't just go back to living the way that you were. If we're following the way of Jesus, we're living in a new way. We're living in the way of the future. We're living in the way that the world will be when Jesus comes back and puts things to right. And it's an incredibly attractive way as well. It's a way that the world around us is craving to have. People are looking for meaning and they're looking for purpose and they're looking for hope. And people are looking for a a different relationship to money and to materialistic things. People are desperate to get off the materialistic treadmill of just working to earn the next thing or being stuck in the mortgage. People are trapped in that way of life and modelling to them a different way, Jesus' way, is actually highly attractive and people will come to Jesus when they see that lived out authentically. So what we see in this passage, both the tensions and the riots on the one hand, but also people turning to Jesus and responding to Jesus on the other hand, is exactly what we should expect as a church on mission and as individuals living in the way of Jesus. We're called to live a different way. It won't always be comfortable. It won't always be received positively. But it will be grabbed hold of by people who see it put into practice in our lives when they see the beauty of the way of Jesus. I want to finish with a final image for us. This is what that shrine, you saw the replica, this is what the shrine of Artemis looks like today. Uh, It's basically a reconstituted pillar um, put together from pieces of the pillars that have been found in the ground. Uh, And I did a Google search this week to try and find out how many worshippers of Artemis there are in the world today. There's not many, though there are some. Some people who uh, are pagan, uh, you know, pagan witches, uh, Wicca, uh, still worship Artemis, um, but they're few and far between. So that cry of the crowd, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, looks a bit ridiculous in the light of history, and yet the phrase, Jesus is Lord, continues to resound around the world as millions and millions of people follow him uh, and many more people become followers of Jesus throughout the world each and every day. And in the light of eternity, (laughs) that same cry, Jesus is Lord, is the one that's going to resound and last and be standing and shown to be the truth. And all the other idols in including money and materialism and wealth, are going to be shown to be crumbling pillars like that in the light of eternity. So let me pray for us as we follow Jesus together. Jesus, thank you uh, that you show us a better way, a different way to live. Please help us to submit every aspect of our lives to your rule and kingship. Please help us when that leads us into tension with those around us, but please help us to live it out in ways that are authentic and real, that people might see the beauty of your way and come to follow you as well. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.